0: You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church podcast. Hang around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy We get to finish up the Family Feud series. The family is no longer feuding. Maybe. They might be in a fugue state, but uh, mm -hmm. that was a rough joke. All right. What? No? Jen didn't approve. All right. It's been a minute. Like I said, we've gone through Genesis from the very top of it to the very end of it now that we will get to today, the very last verse of it. And it has been a long process, and I really, I really wrestled with this of how, how much do I try to like bring everything together all in one sermon? You're welcome. I decided not to really do that uh, because we would have needed three lunches and a long, long time to make it through all of that. So today we're just going to go through chapter 49 and 50. We're going we're gonna to finish up this story. <clears throat> we've, uh, we've talked through... Mostly in this series, the Jacob and his family of Joseph and his brothers, the the tragedies that have occurred with this family that has really tried to rip this family apart in a lot of ways. Um, we've talked about that for the last, this is the ninth week, I think. It's been a minute. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we've covered, the last third of the book, essentially. Um, so yeah, that's where we've been. And we're going we're gonna to wrap it all up today, hopefully with a bow. Uh, But we're going to pick it up in chapter 49. Now, chapter 49 is comprised of Jacob getting his sons together. He just got done blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. He did the whole hand-crossing thing. He's like shell game of who's getting the Behor blessing. And he gathers the rest of his sons together, and he gives them each a blessing. He goes from the oldest to the youngest, with one exception, which is really weird. Uh, I forget. It's Issachar and Zibun. Nope. I can't say his name right. Issachar and whatever uh, the Z brother is. Um, He flips those for some reason. I don't have a good explanation for that. If you know, let me know. Um, But oldest to youngest, down the line, everybody gets a blessing. Some of them are big blessings. Some of them are small blessings. Each of these blessings, though, pull from the son's past. And they give insight into their future somewhat. I think that these blessings also show that Jacob has some knowledge about the sale of Joseph. Now, I don't know. You can't really find it in the text. I don't know if the brothers told Jacob. I don't know if they told him what they did. If they, if it was ever kind of really put out in the open of, Hey, by the way, we tried to sell Joseph into slavery and he's, yeah, we're the reason we, we were going to fake his, we faked his death. That was a thing. I don't know if they ever did that. It's not real clear, but I think the blessings make it clear that Jacob knows what happened. We'll see why in a second. I think it's also worth noting that Jacob hits the nail on the head for all of these blessings. Like, as far as the future telling, um, really kind of hits it out of the park. Jacob's got some insight into his boys, and he knows what their lives are going to look like. He calls it. We're not going to cover all of the blessings for each of the twelve, but we'll we'll pick out a couple of important ones here that I want to want to zone in on. Uh, so we'll start with Simon and, uh, Simeon and Levi. <clears throat> now you remember Simeon and Levi were the ones that went in and murdered an entire town in our first sermon of the series. That was cool, just a little just a little thing like that. So. So Simeon, Simeon and Levi, this is probably the least nice blessing out of the 12. Uh, he pairs these two together because they're two peas in a pod, apparently. Uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. We get this call back to Shechem where they killed the entire city. They are weapons of violence. Apparently, Simeon and Levi have this, we know from that story, they have this strong protective streak. They're looking out for their sister. They have this sense of justice, but they're overly violent with it. They're impulsive. They're reckless, perhaps. For in in their anger, they killed men and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. This oxen, I'm not going to get into why, but this oxen is possibly a reference to Joseph and the sale of Joseph. They hamstrung their brother. They were setting out to get rid of him. First clue that possibly Jacob knows what's going on. He says that he's going to divide them and scatter them in Israel. I don't think that it's uh, accidental that Levi, this person who has this kind of clenched fist on right and wrong sees things in black and white. I don't think it's accidental that he ends up giving birth to a tribe of priests that are scattered amongst these people that are in charge of living out this distinct black and white. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's God saying, we're going to redeem this somewhat. Cool. So let's go to Judah. Judah is the next one that we want to look at. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. <clears throat> it says a couple things after this, but we're going to leave it right there. So Judah's blessing here, a couple things to point out. Praise is closely tied with Judah's name. Always has been, always will be. That's his name. Like I will praise God. That's where that comes. Like when you go back to their names, their names really reveal a lot about who they are. And it starts with that. Your brothers shall praise you. You'll be leading your brothers in praise, if you will. We get the lion cub reference, which might be the first time that Judah is called a lion. Um, I, think, I think it is, which makes sense because he's a cub at this point, apparently. Uh, that was a bad joke. Judah, it says though, Judah, he has his hand on the neck of his enemies. Judah is similar to Simeon and Levi in that he has the capability. He has this, this thing about him where he can come in and just put you down recklessly, without without a second thought. He will come in and he will just lay waste, right? And this makes sense for what we know of Judah later in the story of the tribe of Judah. It's the big one. It's the powerful one. It's the protector. And in this blessing, it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The sons, all of his brothers are going to revere him kind of as the behor, as the firstborn, as the leader of their group. They're going to look to Judah. And we've seen that play out in these stories. Like Judah comes in and protects Benjamin. Judah is protector and the brothers revere him because of this. And they're going to bow down. They're going to, they're going to acknowledge him as leader because of this. And I I think you could probably see like this can go badly and this can go well. Simeon and Levi, this sort of protective doesn't go very well. Judah, on the other hand, in these stories, we've seen it starts, maybe not the best because he has his hand on the neck of his brother, Joseph, and he could have gotten rid of him. But you remember it was Judah that said, what good does this do us to kill? No, no, no. We shouldn't kill Joseph. And we could talk for a long time about the implications of this and how Judah's story changes here. But where I think we would land is that the brothers acknowledge his ability to protect and they bow down because of this. But Judah differentiates between threats that are outside of the family and threats that are inside of the family. Judah has this discernment to him. And Jacob is calling this out in this blessing. Side note, there's a lot of really, really cool connections between Judah's blessing here and Psalm 30. You can go dig into that for days. It's really cool. Uh, what David is doing in Psalm 30, he's going back and referencing this in a lot of ways. So we have Judah and, and there's this, once again, kind of reference of, yeah, dad knows. Dad knows what, what happened. Okay. Let's talk about Joseph, because he's kind of an important character in the story. And he gets the biggest blessing out of this section. A couple of them are like two sentences, and Joseph's is big. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Sound like maybe his brothers? And yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you by the almighty, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above blessings of the deep that crouch beneath blessings of the breast and the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting Hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. A couple of things here to take note of fruitful says fruitful right in the first two sentences twice. Uh, possibly a play on his kid's name. Ephraim's name means twice fruitful. Little, little pun there, perhaps. The unmoving bow. I think this is calling up imagery because the, the, the archers, you know, bitterly attacked him. His brothers bitterly attacked him. But this unmoving bow, I think this is calling up imagery of his steadfast faith in God. Because we saw early on when Joseph is in slavery, he's attributing the dreams, his ability to see those, he attributes it to God. He's got this kind of streak and it falls away maybe in the middle a little bit and then it comes back. But there's this streak of his, like he is unwaving in his faith in God. And I think Jacob is calling this out for some reason here. That his steady faith in God and his design Because Joseph knows his design. He says, this is who I am. And sometimes that plays out badly, but he's steady in that. Then Jacob continues and he says, God's going to heap blessings on you even more than Abraham and Isaac. Mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. He's calling, he's calling Joseph back. He's reminding him in this blessing. He's reminding him of their lineage, of the blessings that came before. I think this is important. And then at the very end, he calls him set apart. And at first, you're like, wait, is this favoritism again? No. Set apart is different than favorite. Set apart is different than favorite. This is Jacob doing what he should have done in the first place. If he knows Joseph's going to be set apart, he just treats him as set apart. That's different than saying, you're my favorite. That's just saying you're over here for this purpose. So after these blessings, Jacob gives instructions for his death again, telling them once again to go back to their lands. He does not want to be buried in Egypt. He does not want to be buried in Egypt. This is about the millionth time that he said this, I think you can go back and count them. But I think it's about a million times that he says this maybe, maybe three times. I don't know. Maybe a million, maybe three somewhere in the middle. Who knows? Uh, But what I think we see in this is Jacob is incredibly aware of the upcoming trial that his family is going to go through. His family is going to have a real hard time getting out of Egypt. And Jacob sees this coming in his old age and wisdom. He knows that this is going to be a problem. He knows his sons. Well, he gets all of these blessings, right? He knows this is going to be a problem. And he calls it. He says, this is going to be problematic. Don't let me be buried here. I think he's doing everything he possibly can literally up until he curls up in a ball and dies at the end of chapter 49. Like he brings his knees up and he curls up and goes back to his parents. That's what it says. Curls up in a ball and dies. And what does he do right before that? He says, don't bury me in Egypt. This is important to him. I think he's trying to give them every chance to possibly pull away from this. Like avoid that pothole out there that you're driving towards. Please turn slightly. Don't hit this thing head on. Don't get stuck in Egypt. <clears throat> and he wasn't trying to get back to Rachel. This is interesting. When he's describing it at the end of 49, he describes it as with his, with his father, with Abraham and Isaac and with Leah, he mentions Leah because Leah is buried there and he's going to be buried with Leah. He wants to be buried with Leah, which what that tells me is more than Jacob being, you know, Rachel was his favorite. So as opposed to going and being buried with Rachel, no, no, no. The lineage is more important. Jacob is finally submitting himself somewhat, maybe a little bit more. I think that points towards this. Jacob is really kind of living this out well, leading his family well here. This is about the legacy. This is not about his selfish desires to not be buried in Egypt. This is about the legacy. And he's pointing them back towards this. So Jacob dies. Genesis 50 starts with Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed by the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Interesting. Interesting. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Observations in this section. Joseph immediately treats his father like an Egyptian death and embalms him if you took the chapter number out, there would be no break between Jacob's death and him saying, don't leave me in Egypt and Joseph reacting as you would for an Egyptian death. Now I will say it's possible that this was to keep the body okay for transport. There's some theories about that. It's possible, I guess. Uh, And he uses physicians instead of priests. I'm not sure there's much of a difference in their culture between the physicians and the priests, but okay, it's a possibility. I don't think that's the whole story though, because it points out 40 days and 70 days. Now, when I say 40 days, what is that? What imagery comes up in your mind for 40 days? Maybe Noah. Maybe 40 years in the desert with the Israelites maybe 40 days in the desert for Jesus. 40 in the Jewish mind is going to bring up an idea of this sort of testing period. So they're mourning for 40 days. The embalming takes 40 days and they continue on for another 70. Seven is number of completion. 10 is community, completion in community, a complete time for them to mourn as a community, perhaps. But I think the 40 is important because I think it points towards Joseph wrestling over, do I stay in Egypt? Remind you, he just got this blessing where his dad was calling him back to this legacy. And his dad had hit him with this over and over. He had him swear. He gives him the blessing. And then he calls him all out again and says, don't bury me in Egypt. He's desperately trying to get them back in line, back to where they, he knows they're supposed to be. I think Joseph is wrestling for 40 days over this. And then Joseph goes to bury Jacob, bury Israel as requested. So Joseph went up to bury his father, all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, all the hob technical term. Besides the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belongings to his father's household. So those all went along too. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there, Joseph observed a seven day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why they, the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizoram. That's literally what it means. Egyptian ceremony of mourning is that what that name translates to basically. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded him. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near, the, near Mamre and Abraham had brought along, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Pause. <clears throat> what did we just see happen? Pharaoh sends a full Egyptian procession. Now, on the surface, you could look at this and say, well, that's because they respect Jacob so much. They respect Joseph so much, right? Egypt loves Joseph. He got them through the famine, right? He saved them from doom. Okay. I think there's some clues in the text that maybe a little bit more is going on. The Canaanites think that they are Egyptians. That verse concerns me. It's a Jewish burial, and they think that they're Egyptians. They look like Egyptians. They name the place Egyptians. I think that tells us some things. What are some reasons Pharaoh might send all his officials? Yes, respect. I think there's also the possibility that he wants to make sure that Joseph comes back. You familiar with like, I don't know, how North Korea does the Olympics, right? Or China or any other communist, Soviet Union, Russia, right? Yes, we'll send out our Olympic athlete, right? But we have their family back home. Right? What do we have going on in this scenario? Oh yeah, Joseph, yeah, go bury your father. The kids and your goats stay here. The source of your wealth and your offspring? They can stay in Goshen. Sounds a little hostagey. See, because I'm pretty sure the Egyptians really want Pharaoh back. Or not Pharaoh, want Joseph back. I think all of these officials that go, the high ups, I think Joseph just made them rich. Remember he institutes feudalism right before this? He makes all of the Egyptians poor. And his family's okay. And then all of the, of course, Pharaoh and his officials are going to be fine. I don't think they want to lose him. They see Joseph as an asset. Egypt Egypt does not want to lose him. So they return to Egypt. Now, what happens when they return is interesting. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They, when they saw that their father was dead, like, oh, we just got back from burying him. Oh, he's dead now. That's how that goes. I don't know. I just think it's funny. Uh, They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. I haven't found that in there that he did that. Uh, This is what you were to say to, to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I don't remember reading that. I've been over this a couple of times. I don't remember Jacob saying that to the other 11. It's implied. It's implied. It's implied. There would, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's also probably implied that they told dad that they were guilty. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't see it in there. So one, this seems a little deceptive again. Like they're falling back on something that might not be so good. You go, uh-oh, what's going to happen again? But Joseph, Joseph sees right through this. He weeps. The brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. More bowing to Joseph. Gosh, this never gets old. Uh, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. All right. <clears throat> so Joseph reassures his brothers that this, uh, this isn't fake for me. This isn't just because dad was alive and I wanted to keep dad happy. Like I wanted to be, uh, stay his favorite and I would be probably not be his favorite if I killed the rest of my brothers that he might be angry about that maybe. Um, and he sees through their ploy. This, this just feels like a ploy of like, yeah, dad said before he died for sure. You gotta do this. Mhm. Not obvious at all. But how he reacts to this is, I think, important for us understanding where Joseph is. He calls things back to God being the designer of all of this. You guys remember the dream with the wheat? That first dream that Joseph has, where he's, he's the st- upright wheat stock and all the other wheat is bowing down before him? When Joseph is in charge of all of the grain in Egypt, all of the food in Egypt, he is the upright wheat. And his brothers come and they bow down before him. That dream was foretelling of that moment. Of that moment. And I think Joseph understands in that moment that he had to end up there. And he was going to end up there whether or not his brothers sold him pit or no pit, slavery or no slavery, God was going to end up getting Joseph down to Egypt because God needed to put Joseph in that spot at that moment for that reason to save his family from the famine. Joseph realizes this and Joseph is reminded of this here. And he calls back and he says, no, this is God's design And because of this, he's not holding it against his brothers. I I know for me, it's easier to forgive people after things have turned out well, as opposed to like in the midst, think about Joseph, like down in the pit, probably not easy to forgive at that point in slavery in Potiphar's house, probably not super easy to forgive his brothers at that point. It would be much nicer to be living a nice life at home with dad and, you know, the rest of the fam and the, you know, Benjamin misses his bro. But now that everything is back together, it's a little easier at that point, probably. But it would still be, still be easy to kind of be, hold a, hold a little, little grudge there, probably. But Joseph doesn't do that. Remember the bow, the steadfast resolve? The steadfast faith in God that Jacob calls out in that blessing? that his arm is held steady, not steady by his own power, but steady by the power of God that we see in Joseph. I think that blessing probably held a punch for Joseph. I think that blessing kind of pushes him over the edge into living properly. So Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his family, Uh, all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The only other Hebrew to ever be embalmed. As far as we know. The only other recorded Hebrew to ever be embalmed. Joseph and his father. I think Egypt's claws are still in Joseph, whether he wants them or not. And I think Joseph realizes this. I think Joseph realizes that maybe I'm part of the problem. I was so good for Egypt that Egypt's never going to let me go. But we're going to set this up. We're going to, we're going to make sure that this is important to the rest of the family that as soon as I'm out of the way, you guys keep the focus on getting out of Egypt. And I think that's easier said than done because Exodus happens and you know, it's like 400 years that they're still there. It's, takes a minute. Jacob saw it coming. It was going to be hard to get out of Egypt. When, when you're living in a place that's really good, really good, it's hard to leave that. So this was 60 years between Joseph's brothers coming to him and then the end here, the end of Joseph's life. And then just kind of zips by. I think that kind of points to the purpose of the story that it's still about them getting out of Egypt. All the other stuff in the meantime, not important. Joseph saying, no, 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 get out of Egypt. So we've had a couple hints in the text that this is going to be tough. We had Joseph happening to tell Pharaoh that he will return. It's really kind of established that Pharaoh does not want to let him go. Egypt does not want to get its claws out of Joseph. And then at the end, he says it twice there, but God will surely come to your aid. And when he makes Israel swear, he makes them swear, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones out of this place. God will surely come to your aid. He's realizing that it's going to take an act of God to get them out of Egypt at this point. They're so, it's, it's already there. It's in the cards. They can see this coming. I think that blessing from Jacob was the the final snap, the push to get the Egypt Kool-Aid out of Joseph's brain. He's still going to live there, but he's not of Egypt at this point, I don't think. That blessing's important. And how often do we just blow right through that chapter? Because it's boring, right? It's a boring chapter. Blessings are kind of lame. Other than the one about Benjamin, it's like, he's like a, a wolf, and it's like two sentences long, and he's going to just be vicious and take everybody out. Benjamin's just this little scrapper, apparently. That one's kind of fun to read, but the rest of it's just like ugh, blessings. It's important. It's important because Jacob is calling out his sons' designs, and he's using that to teach them about their future, which I think is something we've talked about in this series somewhat. We've talked about understanding where you come from, your genogram and all of that. This is important part of understanding things. Our first implication is living out your design redemptively will have a far reaching impact. So living out your design, but doing it redemptively will have a far reaching impact. The first step of this is understanding yourself. A little know-thyself sort of thing. We've talked about the genogram. It's maybe important to understand your family history. The things that made you you, how you got to where you are right now, informs who you are. I cannot encourage you enough to do the genogram. Myself and Rob are still very, very willing to walk through that with people. Help you understand how to use the tool. I'm not going to fix anything about you. can't even fix myself. But I will show you how to use the tool. I'm good at that. And I can't believe I'm going to say this, but even like other, other personality test things, like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. Look, Jen's losing her mind because I just, I, I recommended the Enneagram. Holy crap. Jen's losing it. Mark that day down. Put that one on the calendar. Uh, Harry Potter's sorting hat. Also very useful. For sure. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I don't care what the personality test is. Personality tests can be useful, but I will put this caveat in here. This is where everybody that loves the Enneagram will hate me a little bit. But don't let them control or limit you. That's not the purpose of these. That's not useful. That's like... That would be like Jacob giving the blessing and being like, Judah, this is what, and, and it's like, well, dad said it had to be, no, there's, there's different redemptive ways that they can live out those blessings. Frankly, if you go back to Simeon and Levi, there's a redemptive way for them to live that out too. Even though that one seems mostly like that's a rough blessing. There's a redemptive way for them to live that out. Don't let the personality tests or the genogram for that matter, those don't get to dictate who you are. Those just help you understand and see yourself through a possible lens. Do let them help you grow. All right. Enough about that crap. Move on to implication number two. This one's fantastic. I hate this implication. This is so convicting. Why? Why Why does this always happen to me? All right. So following Christ will and should challenge your other allegiances. Joseph following God, this challenges his allegiance to Egypt. It puts him in direct opposition of this, right? We saw that clearly. So I'm going to take this a step further. Following Christ for ourselves, it's going to challenge your other allegiances. The question there is, can people tell you're a Christian? Can the Canaanites tell who you are, or are you Egyptian? Oof. When they look at your news feed, can they tell who you are? When they see how you act, can they tell who you are? This is rough sometimes, but I think it's important that we remind ourselves. I would hate... I would hate for some place to get a label like the Egyptian place of mourning. I don't know what that would be. The pagan place of mourning or the pagan place of worship or something like that. I, I don't know, whatever. I would hate for it to be misnamed because I didn't clearly represent my God. To challenge your other allegiances. Implication number three, when you are called into Egypt, go faithfully, but don't forget why you are there. Sometimes God will take us into challenging situations. Sometimes he'll take us to Hawaii. Nah, that might be challenging too in different ways. Hawaii might be a lot like Egypt, actually. It's really nice there. Everybody loves Hawaii, right? Very fertile. There's good fruit, fish tacos. Fantastic. There might be lessons there that need to be taught though. It might be tough leaving Hawaii. Like this is gonna, this is gonna be terrible. I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Gracie will have to let us know. We'll do a follow-up sermon to this. Leaving Egypt, Gracie in Hawaii. So, Point being, don't be afraid to go where God is calling you. Don't be afraid to go into Egypt. They needed to go into Egypt in order to survive the famine. God's people needed to go there. God had this plan for them to end up there. But when you go there, you need to not lose sight of your purpose. And that is easier said than done. The only advice I have for not losing sight of your purpose, two things. One, make sure you're prepared. You have to be prepared. Since you don't know when you're going to be sent into an Egypt, uh, you should probably start preparing yesterday because it's probably going to happen any minute. should be aware that it could happen any minute. Preparing means building your spiritual muscle. Joseph has the steadfast faith in God. He's got God holding his bow steady. I can't get over that imagery. That imagery is so good. It's all convoluted. When you go into the, it's like a hand holding arm, hand, hand, arm. Like it's, it's all wonky, but it's so good of God is sitting there stabilizing this bow of his, this intent of his, this focus Build that spiritual muscle and then knowing your design, knowing your intent, knowing where you're going, knowing what you're supposed to do. Muscle and design. The second thing, never go alone. Joseph had the spiritual muscle, had the intent, and he still ends up walking like an Egyptian. Insert the Bengals reference there. Fantastic. He needs his dad. He needs a spiritual mentor, a discipler, if you will. Oh my gosh, that leads into the next series so well. You're welcome, Rob. He needs somebody to come in and be able to say, "Hey, buddy, let's, let's, let's reduce the makeup, or uh, whatever I, uh, Egyptians do. The bangles. I don't. Uh, oh, that. That wasn't intentional." <laughs> But he needs, he needs somebody to come in and, and tell him and help him with this. Cause doing this alone, not possible. You need community, never go it alone. So don't be afraid to go into Egypt, but prepare, proper, prepare properly. Wow. That's a mouthful and also take along your crew. So we end our time in Genesis with this family that God chose These partners that he pursued, if you will. It's a joke because that was the name of the series two years ago. This family that's been through all sorts of ups and downs, a family that has had every kind of chaos, literally rape, murder, incest, like it's all there. This family is a hot mess. Find me a family that has a bigger issue than this one. I don't think you can. It's all there. family that probably should have torn itself apart by this point a couple of times over. But instead we end up with this family that is being welded together in the land of Egypt. And they're being welded together, together by a handful of redemptive choices, just a couple of them. They're big, but there's a couple of redemptive choices that have taken this family and managed to knit it back together To bring them through the conflict, through the feud, if you will. Man, nailed it. Through the feud. With these redemptive choices, held together by redemptive choices and faith in a good God. This good God that we learned about way back in Genesis 1 carries through and they have this faith in him and that's managing to propel them along and give them just enough to keep making redemptive choices that has held this family that should have imploded or exploded or decombusted. I don't even know ripped itself apart, but it's held it together. And not only that, but they hold spoiler alert. They hold together for 400 years in Egypt and then they hold together under slavery and then they hold together going out of Egypt and they become a nation that affects the rest of the world. And frankly, the Jewish people are still holding it, holding it together real well. There's a sense of community there that has just moved down through the generations. That as a Gentile, I'm a little jealous about. I don't feel that much connection to my Scottish heritage. I got a little bit, but not that much. redemptive choices, and faith in a good God. It's the solution to the family feud. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come say hello. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church/give. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in.